This morning, if you're visiting, we are actually uh, working our way through a series right now, and the series is called The Week That Changed the World. Now, if you're visiting, maybe you're uh, under the assumption that week was October 25th through November 3rd of 2016, which was the week that the Cubs won the World Series. That's right. No, that's not the week we're looking at. That was a week that changed the world. Now, this is a, a, little, a week that happens a little bit earlier than that, okay? This was the week that led up to Easter. So what we've decided here at Connect is uh, uh, rather than just kind of rush into Easter, you have Palm Sunday the week before Easter Sunday, and, and you tend to speak about Palm Sunday on that Sunday, then the following Sunday is Easter Sunday, and everyone comes to church, which is awesome, and we, we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but, but a lot happened between those two Sundays. So we kind of, we started our Easter series a little bit early, so we could actually walk through this week that changed the world, spend some time talking about each day, and uh, we've been in this series for a couple of weeks now, so um, today would be Wednesday, but not a lot happened on Wednesday. We don't read of anything that happened in the life of Jesus on Wednesday. Um, we, we assume that that may have been the day that Judas was, was meeting with the religious leaders, that there was some scheming going on, but we're actually going to jump now this morning to Thursday. We're going to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at that Thursday prior to Easter. Now, there were several events that took place on that Thursday that we could look at. We could look at the disciples as they were preparing for that Passover meal. There was going to be this, this, this Passover meal that Jesus and the disciples were going to have together. We could spend some time talking about that last supper that they ate together. We could talk about the fact that when they arrived, they all rushed to get their spot at the table and, and Jesus reminded them that, that no one had yet washed their feet, a tradition in that culture at that time. So Jesus himself washed the feet of the disciples. We could talk about him breaking the bread and drinking the wine. And saying to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. Something that today in the church we still do thousands of years later to remember the significance of what Jesus did. We could talk about the fact that it was at that last supper that Jesus announced to his disciples that one of you will betray me. And even looked to Judas directly and said, now go and do what you need to do. But we're not going to look at any of those. I want to jump to the next thing that happened on that Thursday and spend a little bit of time this morning talking about the very next thing that happened. It actually happened on that Thursday evening. And we're going to see what happens to Jesus in a garden called Gethsemane. That's where we're going to spend some time this morning. But before I get there, um, have you ever looked into history have you ever spent time, maybe some of you are history buffs here this morning, you just love reading about or watching movies about history, true stories, and how very often you can look through courses of events in history, and there could have been a, a war that was going on, and there was one battle that changed the direction of that war. Very often when you study some of these wars, you can, you can often narrow it down to one significant event that changed the direction of what was happening. I actually just watched recently the movie, it's called The Darkest Hour. Fantastic movie, it was up, nominated for a bunch of Oscars, and uh, Gary Oldman plays Winston Churchill, and it's just incredible to watch this movie and to realize what was going on in Great Britain during World War II. If you've seen Dunkirk, I think this is a great movie to watch because it, it kind of talks about some of the events that led up to those, those Dunkirk um, uh, rescues that took place. But fascinating insight into who Winston Churchill was and the, and the state of Britain at the time, how, how there was a lot of serious talk about surrender. But Winston Churchill pressed on and said, no, I believe we need to fight and I believe that we can win this war. 
And they did. The Allies won the war. And you know what's fascinating? is You can almost trace it to a specific date. In June of 1944. On June the 5th, the weather over the English Channel wasn't great. The moon was full. The tide was low. It was the perfect conditions for an Allied invasion. But the weather wasn't good. In fact, the weather was so bad that the Germans assumed that the British wouldn't attack. They sent some of their commanders home. Their troops were down in number. Even Rommel returned home to give his wife a pair of shoes that he bought from Paris. But there were some British and American meteorologists who got together, studied the weather, and they believed that there was a break that was coming in the weather. They believed that now was the time to attack. Despite the forecast looking so bad, they believed that there would be a break. And on June the 6th, 1944, the weather changed. And 150,000 Allied soldiers stormed the beaches of Normandy. D-Day began. They began to march towards Berlin. And, and people to this day will say that that was the day that the war turned. This invasion was the turning point of the war. If it hadn't been for that battle, we may all be speaking German or Japanese, maybe. Over a hundred years earlier in Europe, Napoleon's army was sweeping the European continents. But in 1815, at the Battle of Waterloo, Lord Wellington of Britain was successful in defeating Napoleon. Had that battle not been successful, we might all be speaking French today. How about this one? In the War for American Independence, General George Washington trapped British commander Charles Cornwallis at Yorktown, which ultimately led to the British surrender. Had that battle not been won, we might all be saying garage instead of garage. (laughs) So of those three stories, two of which ended well, one not so good, but... um, But they're all examples of how in the midst of a war, in the midst of a big battle, just one significant event changed the course of history. And in the war for our hearts and our souls, I believe the most important battle was fought on that Thursday in Gethsemane. That was where the battle was fought and ultimately won. Jesus was yet to be crucified, and although it was his death and resurrection that were what made his mission victorious, I believe the real battle took place that night in that garden. Let's read about it together, shall we? There are three accounts of this. Uh, There are three uh, guys who wrote, uh, actually there's four, who wrote about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But uh, three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all give an account of the events that night in Gethsemane, but we're going to take a look at Mark's version. Mark 14, 32 through 42. It says that they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and he fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and he found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again. He prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open and they didn't know what to say. When he returned to them a third time, he said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But no, the time has come. The son is betrayed into the hands of sinner, sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here and in comes Judas. And next week, we'll step into Friday and discover what happened on that day. But tonight, today, sorry, we're going to spend some time in this evening. This powerful account of the last night of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. We're going to try and imagine what exactly was was going through Jesus' mind on this night. The emotions that he was wrestling with. And then as we close out this morning, we're going to take a look at just a couple of things that I think we can take away and learn from this in our own lives. You see, I don't believe it was an accident that Jesus found himself in this, this olive grove called Gethsemane. This place full of, of olive trees, still there today, still olive trees there today. I think Jesus and the disciples, they would have gone there often. I think this was probably a place where Jesus enjoyed going to pray. I think this was somewhere that became a private place where Jesus could pray. But the significance of this place would become more evident to his disciples soon. You see, Gethsemane was filled with olive trees, but the name Gethsemane, it's derived from a Greek word, two words, Gat Shimon, okay, are the two Greek words. And Gat Shimon, it literally means oil press. Oil press. Because in this olive grove, not only did the olives grow on the trees, but this is where the work was done as well. Somewhere in this olive grove, there would have been a a, a thing that crushed the olives to get the oil. The olives that grew in this garden, they'd be harvested. And there would have been, in fact, we've got a picture you can pull up here of this, this olive press. Something like this in the garden. They would have harvested them. They would have rolled this big stone around. It would have pushed all the oil out of the olives and produced olive oil. Or E-V-O-O, as Rachel Ray would call it. Apparently. <laughs> Those of you who know me know I have no idea who Rachel Ray is or what E-V-O-O is. But uh, I checked with Casey and that's how it's pronounced. So in that very spot where the olives were pressed and crushed, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. I don't think it was an accident that the very place where these olives were crushed is where Jesus found himself feeling that heavy crushing burden upon him. You know, you may have seen there, there are famous works of art depicting Jesus praying in that garden. And they, they portray him as this just angelic being. And he's kind of looking up to heaven and the light's shining down. He looks very peaceful. But I don't think that's what it was like. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. I think Jesus was battling several emotions in that garden that night. I think there was an emotional pain that Jesus was wrestling. Jesus was a man who loved people. As you read those gospels, you discover that he spent time with crowds of people. 
bringing this good news. In fact, his enemies referred to him as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. People enjoyed being around Jesus. There was a crowd of 5,000 people who came to listen to him speak one day, and he fed them all. But he was coming to a point in his life now where all those people had turned their backs on him. All felt that his, his demands were too hard, and he was left with just these 12 guys, one of whom was betraying him. Here he was in the garden with just three And even they couldn't stay awake. And then shortly after that, when he's arrested, they just all scatter. And then just the very next day, Jesus would hang on a cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The emotional pain of feeling everyone leave him to where he was isolated and alone. There was physical pain, obviously. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man with skin and bones and flesh and muscles and nerve endings. And he knew what a Roman crucifixion looked like. He knew the pain that he was about to endure. And if any of you have ever had any kind of surgery, you'll know that the surgery itself isn't painful. But, but what is painful is just that dread, that fear leading into that surgery of like, what if? That, that kind of anticipation, that dread. Um, as Eli mentioned, some of you may know that in, just before uh, Christmas, I broke my ankle. Um, I don't know if you knew that or not. I can't remember if I've mentioned it, but uh, it's just it's been a while. The cast is gone. People aren't asking as much. So I thought I'd just uh, remind you, I did break. It was this ankle. still hurts a bit. But um, thank you. I remember being in the emergency room and they told me they were going to perform surgery. I, I've never had surgery. That's, that's a lie. When I was like five, I think they took my tonsils out, but I don't remember that. So never in my adult life have I had surgery. My parents were there, my wife's parents were there, and Ben, my son, was there. And Ben was the only one they allowed back in the emergency room. So we're talking. We're, he has to catch a plane, so we're going through logistics of how he's going to get home, all this kind of thing. And then it was the last time that Ben was going to be in there, and I just um, I knew that I was going in for surgery. By now, it was kind of me just alone in this emergency room. I was feeling that nervousness, that fear. I said to Ben right for it, I said, hey, bud, can you do me a favor? Can you just make sure you text a few people just to ask them to pray for me? He says, I'll pray for you now. He just leant in and he just grabbed my hand and he prayed for me. And I was so grateful that he was there to, to pray for me because I was experiencing that fear, that dread. Now, some of you, I know you've had like major surgery. Like, seriously, Dave, it was your ankle. Like, what, what's the worst that they can happen? They stitch your foot back on the wrong way around. I mean, come on, it's not like, but I, I felt just a little bit of that anticipation and that dread. And I think physically, here is where Jesus was at. Just that, that dread, that, 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 that anxiety, just realizing the pain that was coming. And then finally, as well as emotional and physical, I think he was very aware of the spiritual pain that was about to be thrust upon him. I don't know if you fully understand what Jesus was about to go through, but listen to what uh, the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. He says, the high priest of yours, this high priest of yours, understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same temptations, all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Jesus lived a perfect life. He'd never done anything wrong. He'd never experienced the guilt, the shame, the brokenness that you and I feel when we do something that we know is wrong. But he was about to take all of that onto his own shoulders. Never before experienced sin or the consequence of sin. He was about to take all of it. He wasn't just about to take our sins. He was going to become sin. Paul says when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5-1, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him... 
we might become the righteousness of God. All of this emotional, physical, spiritual dread was having such an incredible physical effect on him as Jesus knelt in that garden to pray. I told you earlier that there are three accounts of this, what took place in Gethsemane that night. Luke, uh, his account is quite interesting. Luke, if you didn't know, was a doctor. He was a physician. So it's interesting when you read Luke's account of uh, the life of Jesus, because very often he picks up on things that the other gospel writers didn't pick up on, because you can tell he's seen it from a doctor's mind. He's the only one of the three to share this um, aspect of what took place in Gethsemane that night. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, he says, He prayed more fervently. And he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. So as I'm preparing for this message, rather than looking to Bible encyclopedia or, or a concordance or anything like that, I actually went to WebMD. And I, Googled, I, I put in the search bar of WebMD, sweats blood. And I came up with a, a diagnosis. It's called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. Let's put it on the screen to make sure I am saying it right. That's the word I'm trying to say. (laughs) According to WebMD, this is a very rare medical condition that causes you to ooze or sweat blood from your skin when you're not cut or injured. Doctors don't know exactly what triggers this condition, in part because it's so rare. They think it could be related to your body's fight or flight response. Tiny blood vessels in the skin break open. The blood inside them may get squeezed out through your sweat glands, or there might be an unusual little pockets within the structure of your skin. Sometimes it seems to be caused by extreme distress or fear, such as facing death, torture, or severe ongoing abuse. Dr. Luke thought that was important for us to understand the intense physical effect this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane was having on Jesus. He's wrestling, wrestling in prayer in this moment, crying out to God. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. You know, Jesus wouldn't normally refer to God as, as Abba. Abba was a, uh, a term in that language that was um, how a child would speak to their father. Do you know if Emma wants something from me, if she calls me Mr. Jane, if she calls me father, she's probably not going to get it. But when she says, Daddy, I'm like, yes, you can have a pony. <laughs> That's all it takes. Just her looking at me and saying, Daddy. This is Jesus crying out to God saying, Daddy. Just imagine the intensity of that moment as a beloved father is listening to the, the cries of his son saying, Dad. Is there any other way? But listen to what Jesus prayed. This is is huge. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. I don't want to go through with this. Please, if there's any other way, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Wow, he says, I want your will to be done, not mine. There There are two challenges I think we can take away in our lives this morning. As we look at what happened in the life of Jesus on this Thursday night of the week that changed the world, I think there are two things, significant things that we, in March of 2018, can look at in our lives. The first is this. Maybe this morning you find yourself in an oil press of your own, a Gethsemane 
of your own, a, a situation that you're feeling crushed by a circumstance or a relationship or, or a health issue, whatever it may be, but you're feeling the weight and the crushing of that. And like Jesus, you've prayed more than once. Did you notice that, that Jesus prayed this prayer three times? This was something that was heavy on his heart. God, please, God, please, God. And maybe you've prayed time and time again, please, God, change my situation. Restore my marriage. Heal my sickness. God, please provide the finances I need to get out of this mess. You feel the crushing weight of it on your shoulders, but you may be asking God to change your circumstances when he's more interested in changing you. You may want him to fix the problem, but he wants to fix you. So listen, like Jesus, never hesitate to ask God, for what you want. He is a loving father who wants to hear our prayers. But can I challenge you with this this morning, a challenge that we can learn from Jesus himself. Maybe now's the time to add to your prayer, but God, not my will, but your will be done. That's really hard. When you're going through a difficult situation to be able to say, God, this is what I want. Would you please release me from this situation? Would you please change this circumstance? But God, not my will but your will be done. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning and you're going through a tough time, that's a tough prayer to pray. But, but look at the Son of God, Jesus himself, leading the way, showing us that's how he prayed. And then there's a second thing I want you to understand before you leave this morning. Because I think the disciples missed this that night. They were so unaware of the, the significance of this moment in this olive grove in Gethsemane that even though Jesus asked them to watch and pray, they fell asleep. I don't want you to miss this this morning because you're asleep. Not actually asleep, like, although maybe you are. We did lose an hour sleep last night, and uh, if you have slept this morning, if you're in the bleachers, well done. That's great. But... Uh, I don't want you to miss this, what the disciples missed, because they were asleep. Wake up, dial right in for this thought. The second significant thing I want you to realize this morning is the difference, this world-changing battle that took place in this garden had upon you and me. You see, God has a plan to rescue us from this, this separation from him to restore that ability for us to be able to have a relationship with him. He is a perfect God and we are an imperfect people. And no matter how hard we try, we're never going to attain to that level of perfection. So God knew there would always be this gap, knowing that we could never bridge the gap. His love drove him to come up with a solution to bridge that gap for us. And it involved sending his son Jesus, his perfect son, to suffer the consequences of sin and death in our place. The pain and the suffering and the crucifixion, that was all for us. That was the plan. That was the your will, not my will be done. And here in this garden, knelt right there, Jesus with free will to choose what to do, made that choice. That's important that we understand that this morning. Jesus had the same free will that you and I have to choose to do right or choose to do wrong. In fact, we can read of another man who was in a garden many years before Jesus who also had free will. His name was Adam. 
His partner's name was Eve. And we can read the story of how they also had free will. They also had a choice. And God said, you know, you can do whatever you want. Just don't do this. And, and they chose to do the wrong thing. They chose to eat from the forbidden tree. And it's affected all of us since. Here in Gethsemane, we find Jesus who Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church, described as the second Adam. Paul called Jesus the second Adam. It's almost like there's a second chance here. There's a, there's a free will. There's a choice here that if it's the right choice, will affect humanity forever. If it's the wrong choice, will send humanity forever to a grave without God. And Jesus, with free will, he made the right choice. He did that for you. And the question as we look on that significant event, on that Thursday, where the battle turned, where the war turned, because Jesus said, I don't want to do this, but your will be done. And stepped towards the crucifixion. As Jesus stepped into that death sentence, the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, what step will we take for him? What step will we take for Jesus? Maybe you've been coming for a while and, and you enjoy the service, you enjoy your friends are here, you know, it's a good place to come along. Maybe you feel good that you've been coming to church and, but deep down in your heart of hearts, you know that there's kind of, it's almost like a magnet, it's drawing towards you and, and you know you're, you're feeling that, that desire to step into a relationship with him. He stepped into that decision. Maybe this morning you need to make that decision to step into a relationship with Jesus. It's as simple as just asking him into your hearts. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Praying that prayer. We, we st- stood this morning with some wonderful families. We prayed for their kids. We prayed for um, God's blessing upon them. Here at Connecting Our Baby Dedications, the families meet ahead of time and they write some phrases down on cards that they really believe kind of God's put in their hearts for their kids. So we pray some specific things. We prayed for some of them to be compassionate and some of them to be strong. Some of them to love others. But every family that gathered here had that same prayer that one day that boy or girl will grow up and choose a relationship with Jesus. Not because their parents raised them that way, but because that's their choice. Because they've taken that choice. And maybe this morning you're here and, and you're faced with that choice. Shall I step towards Jesus? Maybe it's to step up and be baptized. Maybe you've made that choice, but you've never gone public with your decision. You know in your heart of hearts when we show these videos, when we talk about baptism, that again, it's kind of tugging you, that, that idea of I need to respond to this. Maybe this morning the step for you when you leave is to sign up in the foyer and say, I'm interested in being baptized in a few weeks. Or maybe this morning you are a follower of Jesus and the step he's challenging you to take is, is towards someone in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus. It can be very easy for us who follow Jesus to kind of keep our eyes focused on him, but I think he wants us to keep kind of one hand on him and one hand on the friends and family and loved ones who don't yet know him. Because when he knelt in Gethsemane, I believe he knew that it was you and me, but I believe he also knew that there were folks who still don't know Jesus, who live in this community, who who sit next to us on the baseball fields and the soccer fields, who sit next to us at school functions, who we work alongside. He knelt in Gethsemane and made the decision to go through that emotional, spiritual, and physical pain for them as well. And he's just wanting us to share that with them, 
to invite them along to connect, to share what God's been doing in our lives. He took that step that day in Gethsemane. He made a choice to say, God, your will be done and stepped towards the cross. I want to ask you, what step will you take for him this morning? Let's pray. Father, the, the clock is ticking down as we work through this series, Lord. It, it started out with such jubilation as Jesus came into Jerusalem on the, the back of a donkey. People were laying down palm trees, palm leaves and cheering. And it was this triumphal entry. And we've discovered over the last few weeks that in a few short days, things changed. And, and the week that changed the world is drawing to a close. Next Sunday, we will spend some time looking at the fact that you came to a point of giving up your life for us. But I believe, Lord, that that victory didn't take place on the Friday. It took place on that Thursday night when you knelt in that garden desperately asking God if there was any other way but then coming to the conclusion that it was the only way. And for us, because it was the only way for us, Jesus, you stepped into that for us. Thank you that you did that. Lord, help us never to forget. Help us to respond by stepping into whatever the next step is we have in our lives for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.